we've been talking about a few things uh, this last, uh, these seven days of meetings we've had so far, in case you might have not realized it. And just yesterday, we dealt with something very important. Living it up for the Lord was the title. The subtitle was, It's Crazy to Cling to Cancer. And specifically, we were dealing with the issue of growing in God's grace. We gave you a phrase that we're going to put up on the screen right now. Grow in the Lord by the light of His Word. That was the phrase we had for yesterday. And we know that growing is sometimes tough. They say no pain, no gain. We've been talking about God's grace for quite a while. Now we're talking about the growth that God wants to have us go through. Would you say that with me briefly here? Grow in the Lord by the light of His Word. Up to this point in time, we have been considering what... Uh, biblical beliefs that are quite generally believed by many, if not most, if not all, Christians. Starting today, the second seven series, we've got seven coming up. The, sh the messages I'm going to be sharing from now onwards are to some degree, I say to some degree, unique. Unique, to some degree, not totally. Because today's message, as you listen, you'll say, wait a minute, that might be different from what I have understood or believed. And from today onwards, I want you to continue to listen, not to me, but to rather go to the Word of God. Remember those Bereans? They listened eagerly, right? And they went to study the Bible daily to see whether these things were so. Let's pray before I open the Word. Holy Father... Thank you so much for being good to us. Bless us now, Lord, as we spend these sacred moments in your presence. Guide and direct us in your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Interesting story I came across. My mother-in-law actually shared this with me. Sad, a Brooklyn teenager. This is again, this, uh, just a recent one. Three months ago, Brooklyn teenager by the name of Richie Molina, 19 years of age, had an argument with his friend. Did you hear, hear the word? With his friend. And as they were arguing, it got to beyond arguing. He punched his friend, 22-year-old Edison Guzman. He punched him. He kicked him. Knocked him to the ground. And then, as the train was approaching, he rolled him onto the tracks. And Edison Guzman was killed by the approaching train. A Brooklyn teenager with his friend. Did you hear what I said? His friend. Now that's a teenager. You're saying, wait a minute, ah, these teens, they have no morality. Hold on, folks. Atlanta. Let me give you something updated right here. L uh, Lena Driscoll, the Atlanta police say, was not happy because her boyfriend... His name was Herman Winslow, had dumped her or had chosen to start dating somebody else. And so Lena walked up to Herman as he was sitting reading the newspaper, put the gun to his head and cold-bloodedly fired it twice and killed him. Lena Driscoll, 78-year-old. Herman Winslow, 85-year-old. It is not just the teenagers, folks. We are sitting in an incredibly, unbelievably, morally <laughs> decrepit world. Now, what's interesting, though, by the way, when the 9-11 uh, terrorists attacked, 
virtually all Americans unanimously, I'm going to say this, unanimously denounced the September 11 terrorist attacks, and I'm reading, as a textbook example of evil, suggesting that there is a foundational belief in an absolute standard of right and wrong. So what did the Barna Group, by the way, the Barna Group, they're not far away, George Barna, the Barna Research Group from Ventura, California, decided to do a study. And so in February 2002, a few months after that terrorist attack, they did a statistically valid analysis of all Americans, both those who claim to be believers, those who claim to be Christians, and the general population. And guess what they found? I'm going to read this to you. A majority of Americans base their beliefs and moral decisions on feelings and reject the idea of absolute truth. It's interesting. When it comes to when people hurt us, we say that's absolutely wrong. <laughs> but when it comes to our own choices, the majority of Americans, you don't know how many? Listen carefully. The survey done February, and was, it came out February 12, 2002. This is the results. 64% of adults and 83% of teenagers interviewed for the study believe that truth is always... Now, wait a minute. Isn't that an absolute term? Oh, but they believe that. Truth is always relative to the person and their situation. Okay. 64% of adults. That is almost two-thirds and more than 80% of teenagers in general. What about Christians? Oh, folks, the situation isn't too good. This includes everybody. Now, adults. Ad, uh, teen, adults who are Christians... Only 32%, less than one-third of adults, believe in moral absolutes. These are Christians. Hold on. I'm talking about Christians now. Less than one-third of those who claim to be Christians believe in absolutes. The teenagers? Bad news, folks. The situation is dreadfully and dismal. Listen to this. Dreadful and dismal. Teenagers? Less than 10% of teenagers believe in absolutes. Okay, that's the reason. That's, those are the facts. Now, I know there are all kinds of things. In fact, I have something I want to show you here on the screen right here. Because sometimes we come up with all kinds of, what's the best word? Excuses. We say, I had no choice. Have you heard this one? Damned if you do, damned if you don't. And at the bottom it says, come on, come on. It's either one or the other. And people say, oh, I have to choose the lesser of what? To evils. We have all kinds of things we come up with, all kinds of, if you please, excuses. In fact, more than a decade ago, I saw uh, the cover of Time magazine. I don't have the original here, but you can see the word in large letters. You see the big word? What does it say? Infidelity. And then smaller, it says, it may be in our genes. Huh. Interesting. But the problem is they misspelled the word genes. That's the problem. Okay, so this is there's all kinds of excuses out there. It is amazing. Okay, when it affects us, we want to believe in absolutes. It's wrong to steal my car, but when it comes to our choices, across the board, less than one third of adults, less than ten percent of Christian teenagers, I'm talking about Christian adults, say there are moral absolutes. We're in a desperate, dangerous situation in our current society. United States is, what's the word, best word, is in a, what do they call these things, a whirlpool? Okay, we're being sucked down to moral relativism. And you know what? As a result, there are many people who are becoming very, very concerned. And so, I found this 
You can find this on the website. Important announcement. These are Christian leaders, pastors, theologians. Important announcement regarding the Ten Commandments Day. May 7, 2006. And I'm reading just a couple of lines. We are excited about the move we have made for the date of the first annual Ten Commandments Day celebration. It was planned for February. They've moved it back to May 7, so there'll be more time to prepare and get the word out. And now listen to the last line on this page advertising the Ten Commandments Day. And you, some of you will begin to see immediately the implications of this. Ten Commandments Day, May 7, 2006, will offer us an opportunity to make a bold declaration that America is still, quote, one nation under God. Mm, political implications, some of you can see that right away. Very interesting political implications of that uh, move for that. Now, rightly so, people are concerned because we are living in an incredible age of immorality. No question about it whatsoever. What should we do? Where do we go when we have all of these problems? Unbelievable problems. Perversion of the greatest kind. What should we do? As Christians, we have said, let's go to the Bible. So I want to encourage you now to go to the Bible and let's consider now some very, very important issues. Let's go to Scripture because we know there is all kinds of lust around us, all kinds of immorality, all kinds of gore, and it's not just on Hollywood, it's no matter where we look. We are saturated with this type of thing. It's almost impossible to get away from it. And yet, when we go to the Word of God, there are interesting phrases. And I want today to look both at the Old Testament and at the New Testament. Both the Old and the New. So let's firstly go to the Old Testament. It's an interesting statement by the wisest man who ever lived. What is the, who does the Bible say is that? Solomon. You're absolutely right. So let's go to that book of Ecclesiastes. I want us to look briefly now at Ecclesiastes chapter 12 as he gets to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And interestingly, from the context, it appears to be close to the end of his life. This is probably the last book that the wisest man, who by the way became the most foolish man. Hmm, why do I say that? Come on guys. Which wise man would take on a thousand wives? Okay. You know what I mean. I'm talking to the guys now. They understand. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, you know, he, he made many mistakes. Solomon did. Okay. And, and as he gets to the end of his life, Solomon comes to a realization. There is one thing only that is important in your and my personal relationship with this great king that we serve, the God of heaven and earth. And look at those last two verses of this book that he wrote, Ecclesiastes. The formerly wise man who became a foolish man who once again was transformed by God into this wise man. What does he say? Verse 13, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, 14. Easy to remember. The last book, uh, the last chapter, the last two verses. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion. Yes, he's getting to the end now. He's talked about all kinds of issues. What is all vanity? And he says it was vanity going after music and after all kinds of merriment. Now he says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Oh, oh, oh wait a minute. Fear God. I thought we serve a God of love. What do you mean fear God? I love some of the newer uh, ways that this is translated. Respect God. The old English term did not mean uh, be afraid of God. It meant have that great respect for God. Or in simple language, 
Take God seriously. That's what it is. Have respect for your Creator. By the way, I'm going to stop there for a moment. Think about this. How many of you have ever had the privilege, and it's a privilege, to buy a brand new car? Let me see the hands. Anybody here? A few hands going up. Yeah, or your parents got a few, right? (laughs) A few more hands. What happens? You get the car. You say, wow, I'm so happy with this. And if you say, praise God, and one of the first things you do, if you're serious, you open that manual, correct? Because you want to know how to look after this new car, correct? You don't want to mess it up. Now, you have a choice, incidentally. You can do whatever you want. It belongs to you. But if you're going to have a car that will last you longer than a day or two, you're going to try to follow the manual because you have fear. Get the word? You take seriously the guys who made the car. That's what I'm talking about. Take seriously. Take God seriously. Let's go to it again. Fear God. Take God seriously and do what? Keep His commandments. For this, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, for this is man's all. The King James, for this is the duty of man. For God will bring... Oh, he adds a little caution here. Don't just say, I can do whatever I want. Listen to what Solomon says. For God will bring every work into judgment. That's the works. But he goes deeper. Including every secret thing. Whether good or evil. Scary thought. But we're going to come uh, go a little further. This is just the introduction. Let's go now to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, because I want you to make sure that these concepts are reiterated both in the Old and in the New Testament, or as some scholars will say, in the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek Testament. That's the language that is sometimes used. Or in the Older Testament and the newer one. Okay, let's go to the book of Revelation here. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14. The context shows very clearly that this is talking about the end of time. Because how do I know? Revelation 14 verse 14. John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Ah, John is remembering that Jesus says, I will come in the clouds. This is a picture of Jesus coming at the end. Go two verses before that. Just pack up two verses, move back quickly. Two verses, and what do we find? Right there in John, in Revelation chapter 14 verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. I want to pause there. Sometimes we forget that. Christians, believers in God, are called upon to be patient. And patience includes hanging on there. When I talk with people nowadays, I don't say hang in there. Okay? Hang on to the Lord. The patience of the saints. Very important. So it starts with talking about people who cling to Jesus Christ. Then they, then it continues. Here are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and what? The faith of Jesus. Now we've been talking. Yesterday we talked about the importance of we're saved by grace through faith and then we grow in God's grace. We talked about the the faith and the fruit. Remember that? We talked about having the right relationship with our Redeemer as well as the covenant commitment to our Creator. We talked about the balance. We are saved by God to serve. We never want to have these things against each other. We talked about love and the law. They always work hand in hand. Okay, so here it is. Those who keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus. New Testament and Old Testament, they go together. There is no question about it. Now, I want to spend a few moments to reflect. Because you see, if you count, don't try this, but if you try to count, it's been estimated that human beings have 
created, if I can use the word, or put together or formulated, come up with, guess how many rules, laws, and regulations? 35 million. 35 million. Pretty lot. You, you know, you, how are you going to read and study and get to know all of them? But let's look at the big ten. God established ten major ones, and we know where it is found, many of us. Exodus chapter 20. Let's go there. That's where we find this very important document. And in the context, it is clear that God was developing a nation as he was bringing them out of captivity. And here he has brought them out. And now let's look at Exodus chapter 20. We've got to start with verse 1. Exodus 20 verse 1. And God spake all these words saying... Start with verse 1 that tells you who's speaking. Here he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Very, very important, folks. You've got to read verse 2. Now, when I was growing up, and I thank God I have the privilege of being raised in a believing Christian home, but what's interesting, we never started with verse 2. Where did we start? Verse 3. At least where I come from, I am the Lord your God, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's where we started. Thou shalt, you shall not have, and from the King James, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. But you must start with verse 2. Why? Because verse 2 lays the groundwork. God starts by saying, I have redeemed you. You start with the fact that God has redeemed people, and then, and incidentally, in the Bible, you'll see Exodus, uh, the Egypt is a symbol of sin, especially in the book of Revelation. He says, I have redeemed you from the slavery and the bondage you've had in Egypt. Once you have been redeemed, now only I will require, says the Lord. It's in that context. You must read verse 2. If you don't start with two, with verse 2, guess what, folks? You and I stand clearly in danger of being legalists. We are redeemed and then He requires. We are saved and then He says, this is how you can serve me. It's very interesting. So we must start with verse 2. Now let's look at them. And I want to show you and share with you what I believe it's an incredible evidence that God did this. He gave these ten words, as it's called in the Bible, the ten laws, the, the Decalogue, specifically to safeguard the covenant relationship he had formed. And incidentally, just a, by the way, quickly, interesting, if you study it, somebody might say, oh, this only came for God's people when he redeemed them from physical slavery. You know, it's, what's fascinating, 20 years ago, I bought a book written by a Lutheran professor of Old Testament. His name was Dr. Walter Kaiser, published by Zondervan Press out in Grand Rapids, called Old Testament Ethics. And in this book, Dr. Kaiser shows that, the, that every one of the Ten Commandments is clearly shown to be valid and expected of people already in the book of Genesis. Fascinating. And you can see examples of that. When Joseph is tempted by Potiphar's wife, he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Thou shalt not commit adultery. When Cain kills Abel in Genesis chapter 4, it's clear that it is sin. When you go through every one of the commandments, 
truth-telling. They're all there in Genesis chap from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 50. Fascinating. And Dr. Kaiser is correct. When, of course, the Israelites were ransomed from their literal slavery, God simply was reiterating, telling them, remember, He's reminding them of that which they had now forgotten. How do I know that? Because even in Exodus chapter 16, before the Ten Commandments are given on Mount Sinai, God says, how and why have you forgotten my commandments? They knew about them. They had forgotten them. They, this was not a brand new thing. This is sometimes like parents and kids. You know, you teach them things and later on they go against it. And I say, don't you remember? These are the three things I told you you should always not do. A kid doesn't say, oh, but this is the first time you're telling me. No, <laughs> I've told you all along. I'm putting them quickly in three crisp ways. And here God does that. These are what he's expecting from everybody. He's reminding the Israelites now what he had expected all the way in Genesis, even before the Jewish nation was selected as representatives and promoters of God's expectations for all people. So, get you got the background. Let's go through them quickly. Number one, the first commandment talks about that personal relationship. You shall have no other gods before me. Folks, God wants to protect that personal relationship. This is against polytheism, having many gods. Now be careful, don't say, oh, I'm not a polytheist. Remember, in modern society, we sometimes have all kinds of gods that we put ahead of our relationship to our Creator. Think about that for a moment. Secondly, the second commandment deals with idolatry. This is a, a visual representation that we actually worship or that we actually put ahead of God. And guess what? And gentlemen, I'm going to talk with you because too often people think I'm talking only against you know, the women. Like I already made a comment. The guys, cars, it's so easy to have your vehicle be above God. That's a visible idol. Some kind, sometimes we worship it. We put more money into the tires of our cars than to the time with our Creator. Danger. Any visible thing, idolatry, no matter what you put there and you visibly look at it and essentially worship it. Careful. God says, I am a jealous God. Look at that verse with me. I want you to go to it because you see it's the issue of a relationship. Verse 5. Here God is saying, I love you. I want to protect that covenant commitment that we have made. Folks, Exodus 20 verse 5. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I the Lord your God am a what? Jealous God. That's a term of a relationship. It's a love relationship. He doesn't stop there. Notice, go further with that verse. Okay, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now verse 6. But showing mercy to thousands to those who do what? Who love me. Wow. Right here in the heart of the Ten Commandments, right here, the second commandment, near the beginning, who love me and keep my commandments. Interesting. So many times we go to, to the book of John, right here, who love me and keep my commandments. So second commandment shows clearly it's a love relationship. The third one says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Verse 7, don't take his name in vain. There was a guy, by the way, on the island of Guam a few years ago who wanted to do, have his name changed to G-O-D. He actually put in a legal request. And they asked him, why do you want to do that? No, I want to. I'm, it's a free country. And then the, this was actually in the newspaper. And the, the one who responded, or the, the writer said, if he gets this done, this guy's name is going to be taken in vain a lot. 
Yeah, now, now sometimes that's the issue of taking God's name literally in vain. So many swearing and cussing. But other times, folks, we take God's name in vain in a different way. We claim to be believers, but we act a different way. Hypocrisy is to take God's name in vain. Interesting. The fourth one, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We'll, we'll come back and look at that a little deeper further on because this is where Seventh-day Adventists are not totally unique because they are Seventh-day Baptists and some others. But we'll come back to that in a minute. But this is where God is saying, I want a special day so I can have that special relationship with you. I want to spend time with you. Again, no other distractions. This is the day to spend with you. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Obviously, that's a relational one. Number six, God's law protects human life. And by the way, Jesus goes deeper. I'll keep your hand in Exodus 20. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 5, because I always want to go and reflect on the words of Jesus. Jesus here, notice what he does in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Because Jesus is saying, folks, this is not simply an external thing. Already, we found in, in Exodus 20, verse 6, it was talking about love. That's an internal thing. And here, you have heard that it was said of old. Now, Jesus, by the way, is not quoting scripture. He is rather quoting the rabbinical teachings that limited to the external act only. When Jesus quotes scripture, he always says, it is what? It is written. It is written. He is not saying it is written. He is really talking about the people who have who have narrowed and restricted the idea to just the literal legal act. So he's saying, you've heard that they've basically restricted this to, you shall not commit murder, period. And Jesus said, no, 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 let's go further. Verse 22, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And he who says to his brother, Raka, okay, that means uh, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says to you, you fool, shall be in danger of the fire of hell. Interesting. Yes, even the motives, that must be taken into account. Raka, by the way, means empty head. Okay? Yeah, that's Aramaic. Be careful. Jesus is saying the commandments go deeper than the external acts. It's all about a relationship. The next one, the seventh commandment, back to the book of Exodus, is what? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Obviously, there, this is a relational issue. Don't steal. Don't steal what belongs to me. And there's Hardly anything worse than the destabilizing of relationships than telling lies about people. Truth-telling is vital. And finally, number 10 captures all of it and says, guess what? It goes to the heart of the matter. Don't even covet. Don't even think to try to take your neighbor's goods stealing. Don't even think to try to take your neighbor's wife adultery. And he goes through. Interesting, as you study that, it goes to the heart of the matter. All of these commands and commandments deal with the heart. Now I want to go back to the fourth. Because you know what's interesting? You can even read it in the English. Fascinating. In the Hebrew language... I checked again this morning. I went back and said, hey, let me make sure I got this right. The, the fourth commandment contains 55 words. 55 words. And I'm suggesting, and I learned this from a, a, a Jewish believer who still keeps the Sabbath. He says this, and he's a part of our denomination. He says this. It's in the heart, linguistically. Guess how many words in the entire Ten Commandments if you start from? You start from where we normally start, you shall have no other gods before me. Specific laws. 163. Interesting. 
163. Beforehand, there's about 60 something, and after there's 40 something, and right there linguistically in the middle is the Ten Commandments. 55. Right there. If you multiply 55 times 3, it comes to 165. And there's a total of 163 words. So even linguistically, it's in the middle. And why is it the fourth? Because it talks about respecting God, and it talks about making sure you treat your, the, even the servants who work with you properly. That's the law that links obedience to God, love to God, with love to man. Fascinating. As you study this fourth commandment, there's a lot that comes out. And I want to move very rapidly now into this issue. Because sometimes, even those who are people who believe in the Sabbath, and I said there are others, Seventh-day Baptists and other believers as well, we tend, there's a danger, that this becomes a legalistic system. Let's go now, and, and it feels like bondage. So let's go to the book of James. And let's see what James, who the scholars correctly believe, is actually related to Jesus by blood ties. Apparently he was the half-brother. This James, the other James, the disciple, had been killed. We know that. So we go to the book of James, and we will read what James shares with us here. James chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. Fascinating perspective that James brings by inspiration. Remember, James is writing by inspiration. He says every, and we had read the phrase about every good and perfect gift. Sorry, that was chapter 1. Let's go to chapter 2. James chapter 2, um, verse 9 through 12. Start with verse 10, rather. For whoever shall keep the whole law, of course, verse 9, he talks about sin and transgressors, transgressing the law. For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one, he is guilty of what? Ah, he's guilty of all. Now, the question is, which law is he talking about? Interesting. Which law? Back in verse 8, incidentally, if you really fulfill the royal law, he uses the word royal, who is the king of kings? Right? Jesus, God, and in fact in Nehemiah 9 verse 6 it says, you are the king of kings, the God of heaven and earth. So he says, he uses the word royal law, but you say, now let's be specific. Which ones are you talking about, James? If you show, and he says, if you break one, you're guilty of all. Okay, let me tell you what I'm talking about. Let me give an example. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Ah, I know now what law you're talking about. What law is he talking about? Ten Commandments. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become transgressor of the law. And he says, if you break one, you're guilty of all. Now, notice verse 12. Key, folks. So, speak. And do as those who will be judged. Remember, Solomon, the wisest man, spoke about being judged. You will be judged how? By what? By the law of, what is the word? Liberty. Fascinating. The law of liberty. Interesting. James says it's a law of liberty. So the whole Ten Commandments is actually a law of liberty. All of them. And they free you up. Think about that for a moment. The law of liberty. Now I want to look at the statement I have here that I want you to remember because this is crucial in the context of what I'm sharing with you today. Saved by grace, we love to keep God's law. That's the context, please. There is no legalism. It's loyalty. The loyalty and royalty. Notice that. This law is a law of royalty and it's a law from God's side and it's a, from our side it's a law of what? Of loyalty. From God's side of royalty, from our side of loyalty. Notice that. You want to read it with me? Saved by grace, we love to keep God's law. 
Fascinating. God wants us to have that personal relationship. And actually, the reality is that the seventh-day Sabbath was set aside, and in Isaiah, it's called delight. That's the title. That's fascinating. He actually says the Sabbath is delight. He gives it a nickname. Isaiah does. Delight. I'm a, I want to apologize on behalf of everybody who has ever seen sad Sabbath keepers. No way! How can you be a sad Sabbath keeper if you believe this is the law of liberty? This is the law, and, and I'm talking about the whole law, all ten. Now you'll notice the title of my sermon was The Quarantine Guarantee. Why? Because God says in Exodus 15 verse 26, I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will keep you safe if you choose to follow my commandments. Quarantine, I checked it on the dictionary today. It is protection against infectious diseases. That's the reality. And so when we talk about God's law, God's law is that special quarantine. And today I have an emphasis, obviously, because in this we as seventh heavens are unique. The rest of the story is what I call the subtitle. Because here God is saying, I want to have that special relationship with you. A day of freedom, free from work, free from worry, free from stress. Free from all the distractions of the secular world. But free to do something. Free to worship. Free to fellowship. Free to share with others. Free to go out and let others know about my love because of the way I have transformed your life. This is the most delightful day if you read the scriptures in context. Only one person agrees. I'm thankful. Okay? You know, uh, praise God for that one amen. I'm going to repeat, according to what I understand, let's see if there's anybody else who's with me here. According to what I understand from Scripture, and we're going to talk more about it tonight, yes, because I know there are questions raised. We don't have enough time in the afternoon. I hope you'll come this evening. I'm going to fill out the picture a lot more. And I'm going to bring a scientist along because the discussion on evolution is such a major one. Because if you read the fourth commandment, it says, oh, wait a minute, God created the heavens and earth in six days? Haven't scientists shown without a doubt that it took billions of years? We're going to address that this evening. We're going to dig deeper into this matter. I'm going to share a lot more. So you need to come this evening ready to listen a little, quite a bit longer, okay? So I'm going to repeat. And let's see if anybody still catches that. This day, the seventh day of the week, should be and is the most delightful day of the week. There are a few more who agree. Yeah, good. Okay. A lot more. I'm going to share with you a few more things. Unfortunately, I apologize again. Unfortunately, sometimes we have missed the beautiful meaning of the special day that God set aside that He wants us to follow. And we'll talk about other issues this evening. There is not enough time to pack it all in. You'll notice I'm going pretty fast today. But let me just wrap up here. Uh, you know, just a couple of statements as we wrap up. What, what do I say? Let me share with you. And today again... Because sometimes we have people who might be skeptical. I telephoned today to check this out. Remember, again, I called today. I called Michigan because I got a piece of paper here from a fellow Christian group. And I'll read to you because it's official, it's published, and I call them. It's called St. Catherine Catholic Church. So I dialed the number today, 810-794-3301. I said it fast so you wouldn't remember it because I don't want a lot of you to bother. Them. But if you want the number, I'll give it to you later on. I called, I spoke with the secretary, I asked a few questions. I said, did you publish this thing? Is this the St. Catherine Church? Yes, where are you located? To check, 
Yes, I was being serious today. And then I said, did you publish a, a little thing called Sentinel? Yes, we did. We don't publish it anymore. I said, did you have a certain priest there by the name of, this is what it says, Father Leo Broderick. She said, yes, he retired about 10 years ago. Oh, wow. By that time, I was convinced that this was authentic. And you know what it says? 1995. Hmm, about 10 years ago? Yes. Okay. Listen to what this Catholic priest said in this thing that he sent out there, regular, weekly, whatever newspaper. This is what he said to his Catholic parishioners. I'm going to read you one paragraph. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, this is what the priest says, 1995, he wrote it, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. I'm not going to leave a word out. Please listen carefully. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Next sentence. The day of the Lord, in quotes, dies dominica, in Latin, was chosen not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the churches, the Roman Catholic churches, sense of its own power. The day of resurrection, the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, came on the first day of the week. So this would be the new Sabbath. Last sentence. This one just literally blew my mind. Figuratively, sorry. Blew my mind. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority. Anybody here who believes that? Let me hear. Okay, this is what the priest says. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Oh, I had to telephone today. I called this morning because I said, I don't want to come here with things that are outdated and spurious. Okay, that is what this priest wrote. Now retired, and folks, it's not just that priest. I came across one more example. I've got to do this very quickly because I came across this one in a, in a commentary. It says right here, Colossians, published in 1997. H.A. Ironside says this, published right here in the United States, New, uh, Neptune, New Jersey. This is what he says. There is no commandment in the New Testament inculcating the sacredness of the first day of the week and demanding that Christians observe it scrupulously for holy purposes. Yet... The consensus of judgment of spiritually minded believers. That's a catchphrase for what? Tradition. Hold on. The consensus of the judgment, not the Bible. The consensus of the judgment of spiritually minded believers all through the centuries has led to the honoring of this day as Sunday as a time of worship, meditation, and Christian testimony. Wow. Fascinating. There are serious Christians in all denominations. Don't misunderstand me for a moment. And I praise God for Bible-believing Christians out there. I use out there all over the world, right? But it's interesting how people, and I've just given you two statements. These are modern ones in the last decade or so. People who say, we follow and keep Sunday, not because of the Bible, but because of tradition. Fascinating. It's a reality. As you dig, as you learn, as you read, you say, this does cause me to seriously think. But please note, I'm not just talking about people who don't believe what we do. Some of us have abused 
Some of us have, have misused. Some of us have been hypocritical. Some of us have had these long-faced, dreadful, legalistic attitudes towards this wonderful, delightful day, a day of freedom that God set up. Mm. So don't be critical. Don't be critical. If you're going to be critical, be self-critical. Did you hear what I said? I said yesterday, be tough on yourself. And I used the word tolerant. I'm going to change that because nowadays the word tolerance has a bad connotation. Okay, Tolerance means accept every lifestyle, accept everything as being okay. Be tough on yourself. Be tender on others. There it is. God is calling us because He wants to have that loving relationship. I've got to end right here. You know, sometimes it might be the little things, a sour face, an unhappy attitude that causes people to turn away from this beautiful message of faithfulness, loyalty to the royal law. Short story of a man. He was a preacher. He arrived in Houston, Texas. Just arrived. He had occasion to hop on the bus and travel downtown. Okay? And he was on this bus. When he sat there, um, going downtown from his home, he discovered as he sat down that the driver had accidentally given him a quarter too much change. And he sat there and he thought, oh, you better give the quarter back. It would be wrong to keep it. Then he thought, oh, forget it. It's only a quarter. He was a, he was a little thinking about this. He said, what, what would this matter anyway? The bus charges too much anyway, you know. Mm. Accept it as a gift from God and keep quiet. When his stop came, he paused, got to the door, he turned to the driver and said, here, you gave me too much change. The driver with a smile replied, aren't you the new preacher in town? I have been thinking lately about going to worship somewhere. I just wanted to see what you would do if I gave you too much change. I'll see you at church on Sunday. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, we are all being challenged. Do we have that covenant commitment to God? Do we love Him? And do we show loyalty to that royalty? Are we faithful as a result of the fruit that we have in our lives? Let's pray right here. Lord, bless us. Holy Father, forgive us for the times that we have failed dismally when we have acted, spoken legalistically, when we have been hypocritical, forgive those of us. Lord, bless those of us who are struggling with some of this information that might be radically new. Father, for all of us, the challenge is to be faithful to You. Help us to be open to Your Holy Word so that we can better see and represent Jesus Christ, the living Word. In His name we pray. Amen.